Welcome to Garden People with your host, Jill Sowards of Violet Air Studio. Join us each season as we speak with your favorite garden people, designers, florists, growers, naturalists, chefs, artists, and more about how gardens have shaped their lives and informed their work today with seasonal tips, expert recommendations, and lots and lots of plants. To learn more, go to our website at violetairstudio.com. You'll find episode information, our seasonal journal, class list, and seed offerings. Everything you need to start your own garden story. My guest today is Bex Partridge, the floral artist and gardener behind Botanical Tales based in Devon, England, who creates sustainable designs, displays, and installations using dried flowers, also known as everlastings. Bex's work celebrates nature and the shifts of the seasons, drawing attention to flowers in each stage of their existence. Her ethereal displays and designs create a sense of wonder in the observer and bespeak certain magic. Learning from her, whether through her workshops, books, or Patreon community, will change the way you see the garden. Her most recent book, Flowers Forever, is available this month in the UK and USA. Welcome to the program, Bex. It's so wonderful to have you here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So I wanted to begin by just asking you to describe yourself and your work, how you characterize what it is you do and what are your offerings? Oh, that is a very, very hard (laughs) thing to answer concisely, I would say. But basically, I call myself a floral artist. And that is mainly because I'm not a florist. I'm not a traditional kind of florist, but I work predominantly with dried flowers and I work with them throughout the whole kind of growing, drying, and then creating with them afterwards. So it's the whole process within my business that I do. And I do run workshops. I've written books. So I teach people. I make products for people's homes. So whether that be wreaths or, you know, pressed flower or something like that. And then I do installations as well for retail spaces or again, people's homes or maybe restaurants and things like that. So that's kind of the realm that I play within. I don't really do weddings. I don't do fresh flowers that much. It's not because I don't love them. I just don't do them. Yeah. And that's kind of it. Wonderful. And you also have a Patreon community. Yes, I have a Patreon. It's quite new. I started that in February and that has been absolutely loving that because besides the kind of floral stuff, I love writing. I love taking photographs. I love making videos. I love that whole kind of curating of content. And I was struggling a bit with the scroll on by mentality of Instagram, which is not what it was when I first joined Instagram. And I was getting quite disheartened by... Yeah, just the lack of engagement and not in the sense of likes and all that kind of stuff, but more just, you know, conversations with people and things like that. I think it's dramatically changed in the last kind of couple of years. And then a really good friend of mine actually left Instagram and set up a Patreon page. So it's Camilla from, oh, she's over in the Nordics. And I was suddenly like, gosh, that sounds like it could be amazing. You know, you pay a nominal fee, but you get to share so much more about what you do with people who are truly invested in what you're doing. And that's been fantastic. So I'm kind of in my second or third month of that and just loving it really. So I'm there as well. Yeah. (laughs) Wonderful. Wonderful. And how did you come to this work? What was your journey to creating Botanical Tales? A very long, convoluted, winding road to get to where I am now. I guess it's probably good to say that gardening has always been a huge part of my life so this growing side of it which I I couldn't do the rest of it if I didn't grow if you see what I mean I I sometimes feel like the end result and botanical tales is almost the facilitator for allowing me to grow pretty much all the time Mm -hmm. to be in the garden because that's something that I've always loved um, for as long as I can remember I was that 20 year old that didn't want to go to London and wanted to stay at home growing sweet peas and making a new flower bed and You know, I remember having my first job when I was in my teens and spending money with my mum at the garden centre on a Sunday to plant her garden, not mine, (laughs) buy things for her garden because I just loved it. And that has always kind of been at the centre of, you know, my life in some ways. But up until Botanical Tales, it was more just something that I did, you know, in my spare time. We had an allotment for years and it would just be my place where I would go and kind of chill and relax. But kind of Career-wise, I left school at 16, which was very unusual for my family. My family are very traditional. My dad's a lawyer. My brother's a lawyer. My other brother was a lawyer. They all went to university. My mum's a teacher. So for me to kind of leave school at 16 was, yeah, a bit of a shock. But it's 
gives you an indication of how I live my life, which is I tend to not follow any rules. I'll just go and do my own thing. And I actually trained to be a chef, which was amazing. But doing that kind of job when you're in your early 20s, I mean, if I knew now the kind of things you could do with food, like food styling and, you know, all of that kind of stuff, I think that world has really moved on from when I was working in it. But basically, I did outside catering for this wonderful lady who was really forward thinking for back then. She was all about working with seasonal food in the UK, she used loads of edible flowers that she grew herself you know, to kind of decorate dishes and things like that. And anyway, I continued doing that for a couple of years, but I just really struggled with the fact that I was working every weekend. All my friends were at uni. I could never see them because, you know, I was working and then they were kind of away. And so she gave me the opportunity to move into the admin side of that job, which was basically kind of planning weddings, essentially. So I became her wedding planner and helped her kind of, yeah, helped her bring together her events. And that gave me like loads of experience with dealing with clients like really stressful clients and so that was brilliant and then I went traveling for a couple of years with my now husband which was amazing just kind of went all around the world on one of those round the world tickets which I don't think exists anymore I don't know (laughs) and I came back and I somehow managed to fall into marketing which is a bit weird because I mean in some ways it is in some ways it's not but Yeah, I just fell into marketing and then I really fell into the corporate world in quite a big way. And I say fell, like I worked really hard to get there. I studied for the equivalent of a degree in marketing in my spare time. And then I landed a job at Unilever, which is a big FMCG company over here. And I thought I'd made it because everyone told me I'd made it. And then I basically spent the next 10 years being really unhappy in a job that everyone was telling me was amazing, but I just hated to my bones. And... That being said, we we got to do some amazing things whilst I was there. We lived in Amsterdam for two years with my job and that was like just brilliant. The Netherlands is amazing. But after my second son was born, before that, I'd been like reducing my hours and, you know, my heart wasn't in it anymore. But after my second son was born and I had a year off for maternity leave and we just moved into this new beautiful house with a very small garden in a town, but a garden that was full of all these amazing kind of native flowers that because when I'd gardened before I'd only ever gardened in a new plot of land so a house that had been built you know 10 years ago or something so you're dealing with a very blank canvas and often that land is really degraded because it's where they dump all of the you know the rubbish from the build and then they shove topsoil on it so I'd like created a garden from nothing before but I'd never experienced that situation where you go somewhere And there's a garden already there with all these amazing things growing. And that sort of coincided with my son being born in March and obviously becoming a mum for the second time and struggling a bit with everything that comes with it. But but watching this garden unfold as my new life with him kind of started as well, I just like fell in love, really Mm -hmm. fell in love with gardening again, I think. And that's when I started my Instagram account, which at the time, all I ever thought it was going to be was me sharing photos and stories behind the flowers that I was growing or were in the garden. And then it's gone from there. And that was, so Arlo's six now. So yeah, I mean, this kind of nugget of something started six years ago and yeah, it is what it is now. So it's been, as I said, quite a long, weird, strange (laughs) journey to get here, but (laughs) It's interesting that you, two things, one is a question, but I'm so intrigued that you started with food. It's something that brought me to the garden again, too, was mm. was like reading about food and thinking, oh, I could grow, sort of reading about growing without yeah. actually growing it almost. And so I always think there's an interesting narrative of sharing and bounty. And I so see mm. that in your work, you know, so it's, yeah. that connection really makes sense. And I was curious, do you know why you knew you didn't want the university law path? <laughs> Uh, Well, I mean, I definitely wouldn't have done. So I've never been, I've never been academic in the sense that, you know, definitely I'm smart and I definitely can use my brain, but not in the way that a school environment encourages. So when I was actually, when I was 11, I begged my dad to send me to a private school, which is obviously incredibly privileged. My brothers went to the state school and they were really happy, but I just was really, I knew then I was like, I didn't, 
I didn't fit in. I didn't really fit in. And then there was this amazing school near where we lived, which was basically all of their focus was on arts. It was all about creativity. So whereas now I think at that age, you maybe do one or two hours of art a week at school. Mm-hmm. You know, Every day you were doing something creative, whether it was drama, ceramics, you know, painting, that kind of yeah. stuff. And And then when it came to leaving at 16, first of all, I don't think there was any level of advice given back then about what you could do in the world it was like okay you could be a teacher you could be a postman it was literally like that and then you're having to make decisions about a levels and then obviously going on to university on something I had no idea what I wanted to do and I was like this is crazy I can't make a decision for the next two years that's then going to lead me to university which is three years when I don't know what I want to do and it obviously it sounds very now, when I say it out loud, it's like, oh, well, that makes sense. But I don't think this is how I was speaking at the time. I was just like, I don't want to be at school. I don't, you know. Yeah. But now I look back, I know that that's why. And it was the right decision for me because, yeah, I just, I don't really fit into the mold of the um, academic system, basically. So, yeah. And gosh, the thought of kind of doing law and all of that that involve, yeah, no, I was like, no. Being in a job that you don't love, but everyone telling it was, I spent a lot of my life feeling quite inferior to my particularly my older brother, who's very academic and A-stars and all that kind of stuff. And I was, you know, good in other areas, but not necessarily with my grades. And so for me, when I got that job at Unilever and everyone was telling me, this is amazing, Bex, like you didn't even go to university and you've got this job and wow, everyone would like kill for this job. And for quite a while, it for me, it was kind of like a validation that I'd done the right thing, but it was external validation. And that is never, ever going to get you where you need to be and it's taken me a really long time to kind of actually just be comfortable with being happy with where I am and what I'm doing and not needing that constant like you know validation that you're doing the right thing or that you've made it or you know because at the end of the day you've got to be happy with what you're doing (laughs) exactly no absolutely and you've written about and I believe you also mentioned this in your workshop, which I attended your one of your wreath making workshops, but yeah. you've written about finding a sort of once fresh arrangement that had dried out and you were surprised mm. that it sort of still looked nice and, and interesting and that you kind of, and I don't know if you made a wreath out of that yeah. or how you were using that. Yeah. But I was wondering what made you sort of start experimenting? Because I think, you know, just in my own life, I've noticed that I said, oh, this, they actually dried in a very attractive way, but I still put it in the compost. So I was just curious to know yeah. what made you think, I'm do something with this I can't sort of pinpoint exactly what it was that made me go I'm going to try this but all I know is that all of this stuff that went on when so this dried bouquet well it was a bunch of fresh flowers that a friend had given me and it was just from the supermarket but it was mainly it was um flowers that you might get in South Africa so like proteus and you know all those kind of weird Mm -hmm. tropical flowers that dry really well and it was at the point when we were moving house and it was really stressful because we'd just moved back from the Netherlands and I was pregnant and I'd forgotten about this bunch of flowers and they dried. And I was looking back actually on my personal Instagram account the other day and found the post, which was this, which was, I'd made this wreath and it was, you know, I just stuck some stems in a woven base. It wasn't kind of what I do now. And just the comment there saying that at least I had something to hang up in my new kitchen. So I don't know, it was, it was a way of me probably distracting myself from all the stress that was going on, basically. And that was before I had Arlo. And then once he was born and this garden sort of came to life and I started to grow more on our allotment. So I specifically that summer set out to turn over a third of it to growing flowers. And it was actually weirdly one of my most successful years ever of growing because I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't put any pressure on myself. I didn't grow flowers specifically to dry. I just kind of, you know, got a load of seeds and just sowed them. But it was the power of finding a community that appreciated what I did. So all I really did was I set up an Instagram account and then I started sharing what I was doing, that wreath being one of them. And people being like, oh my God, this is amazing. You know, it's beautiful. And me being like, oh, right. Okay. So there's, there is other people out there that like this kind of thing. And because I didn't have any, my mum and my grandma are huge influences kind of from a gardening perspective, but none of my friends were into gardening. Like my husband's an ecologist, so he is, but you know, I was very much on my own when I was out there at the allotment or in the garden. Yeah. And I think it is really, it was back in those early days of the Instagram where you had real like community behind you when you were on there. And I think it just really encouraged me. And I was on maternity leave. I wasn't working. It was my kind of creative outlet and it went from there. 
having said all of that though dried flowers were not new to me like my mum used to fill our house in autumn and Christmas with you know hanging boughs and whatnot and then my grandma she would always have straw flowers everlastings just hanging in the kitchen so it's not like I'd never kind of come across them before but it wasn't a conscious decision like I'm going to get into this it just sort of happened yeah (laughs) and now I'm obsessed so (laughs) yeah yeah I was just curious it's sometimes it's not you know it's so clear but I just love that you decided hey I'll you know do something with this and then yeah everything that came from it yeah and so for your childhood garden or the 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 gardens that you were in as a child you mentioned the everlastings are there any other flowers that are still evocative of those spaces that you you continue to use today so the garden that we had in the house that we grew up in was just a like dreamy amazing I don't know how much space we had but we had enough for the memories to be that we were running wild in the garden and big rhododendron kind of bushes everywhere that we made camps in with you know with my brothers and I have amazing memories of that but I don't really remember specific kind of flowers from my childhood home as much just that it was a real wild space which is what my new garden now is like and that's definitely kind of influenced you know, the way I grow, the the things that I use when I kind of make my creations as well. But I do think my grandma specifically, definitely, and my dad actually now more so that he's kind of got into gardening. They really influenced what I grow and dry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but that the childhood garden for me was just, I just remember fun. Like that's yeah. kind of it. <laughs> more the feeling. Yeah. Yeah. The feeling of it. How are they influencing your, what you're growing today? Well, so my grandma, um, she sadly passed away in lockdown. So she was 90 something, but she, yeah, but she's just always had an abundant garden. She grew loads of stuff from seed, like both vegetables and flowers as well. And I just remember beautiful, beautiful beds, you know, glorious kind of borders and beds of all these mixes of different kind of shrubs and perennials and a real sort of cottage gardeny feel, which Mm -hmm. is actually for the most part not that helpful for drying but you know looks stunning in the summer and that is definitely influencing the way I kind of grow in my front garden which is my yeah it's kind of where I just doesn't you know I grow things whether I can dry them or not there it's just to look beautiful and it's the same with my dad he retired a couple of years ago and he had a house in Norfolk which he's now moved into permanently and he's really really got into gardening and grows lots of beautiful kind of cottage English garden flowers like yeah stocks and foxgloves and just beautiful yeah 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 wonderful and can you describe your garden today both your personal space and your working space yeah so we moved to Devon about 18 months ago and so prior to that I'd always gardened in very small town gardens so you know, kind of the equivalent of a walled garden in the sense that you had a fence all the way around always. And so it's quite sheltered, really, really small. When we were in the Netherlands, I learned how to garden on a roof terrace and in pots and all that kind of stuff. And so to move where we are now, we've got half an acre, which is like mind-blowingly big for me. (laughs) And it's on the top of a hill. It's really exposed to the elements. So I'm just, you know, I'm only in my second season. So I'm really beginning to know learn like where the prevailing winds come from how cold it gets how wet it is where I can grow things we're surrounded by lots of trees so it's quite shady in the summer and that's a big mistake I made last year as I didn't factor that in when I was planning what I was planting where and you know something that's in full sun for most of the day in the spring day is actually really shady by the time the leaves come in the summer kind of thing right it's quite challenging like that but basically it's a rectangle plot with the house at the front and there's a really sheltered south facing front garden which is where i just i'm really kind of focusing on building that up to be just a beautiful beautiful kind of english country garden mm-hmm. space yeah so peonies all that kind of stuff And I just love it. I love to sit out there. And that's my kind of tranquil, chill space. I don't have to do too much work there ever. It's kind of looks after itself. And then the rest of it is lawn that we're slowly turning into a wildflower meadow. So hopefully won't ever have to sort of mow it again. And then at the far corner is where I have my growing space, which is an area that I built kind of straight off as soon as we got here using no dig methods. So cardboard and then compost for the beds. It's a little bit more sheltered because it's in the corner of the plot rather than kind of west facing, which is where our prevailing winds come in. But it is shaded for about three to four months of the year. So I can only really grow annuals there. 
And I'm struggling a bit to grow things like Status that likes full dry sun. But I mean, in the summer, it looks absolutely amazing. At the moment, it's just kind of bare beds. Yeah. <laughs> but that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> and then I also have an allotment, which is crazy because I've got so much space, but I had the opportunity to take on an allotment last November. So I've got that as well, which I'm really excited about. Great. And that's just down the road at the local village. Wonderful. And so you'll be able to grow some flowers there as well. Yeah. So basically the allotment is the plot that we have there is a long, thin strip of land, which is brilliant. So you can divide it into basically, you know, little squares of section to grow. It's on a hill and it's west facing, but it's sheltered. But basically it gets full sun until the sun goes down behind the hill. It's really well drained. And so I'm going to grow things like status, radanth, like all those flowers that need hot sun, dry soil, you know, not very rich soil. I'll grow things like potatoes where, you know, they can just be left in the ground and I don't have to worry about them. And yeah, so it's a great opportunity to kind of take on land really cheaply and just grow those flowers that don't need a lot of care and attention, basically. Yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. I'm in Berkeley, California, so full sun is actually, it's not good for us because it's so hot. You know? Yeah. Like, right? it just, so it's funny. It's like, actually, trees are great, but it's like, I forget that, you know. I know, I know. A bit of, yeah, a little more sun. <laughs> Because we live in Devon, which is like known as it's lush and green. And there's a reason it's lush and green. It is wet. Like the air is damp. And I mean, (laughs) it's weird. Like I have a dehumidifier on in my studio all the time because that is obviously not ideal for drying flowers. But there's just something about it. And we're we're at the top of the hill and it always amazes us every winter that our garden floods as much as it does. But it's because we're on clay soil, Mm -hmm. which holds the water and there's natural springs all around us. So the water table We had our septic tank replaced the other day. Yeah. And the water table, as they were digging the old one out, was just like filling up. Yeah. So, yeah, it's weird. We're getting used to it. But I'd prefer to have too much water than not enough because that's stressful. Yeah, yeah. No, take it from me. (laughs) You definitely want to have too much. Yeah. (laughs) Can you share a little bit about the meadow creation? And you had some diggers in your back garden. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Well, when we moved here, we knew that we were going to have to basically, there's about half a million people in the UK have and not on mains sewage. So oh. basically we have to have our own treatment plant in our garden for all of our waste from the house, basically. And we knew when we moved here, we were in a real, like we moved right in the middle of the pandemic and we just needed to get in so that boys could start at their new school. That was kind of the main thing that we needed. And I don't know what it's like buying and selling a house in America, but it's incredibly stressful in the UK. And we just knew, we knew it needed replacing but we didn't want to go down the route of getting the current owners to do it for us because it would have delayed everything. So we just bought the house knowing that we'd have to have it done. But obviously didn't really kind of anticipate how disruptive it is because I think probably about maybe half of our lawn has been dug up in the process because they have to dig out the old one, put the new one in and then dig a whole kind of stretch, which is where the wastewater just dissipates. But the great thing about it is now that the diggers have gone... <laughs> They flattened the area for us and we have sown the whole area with wildflower seed mix because we tried to do this last year with the lawn. Like the people that lived here before, they were meticulous about mowing it every Saturday. And that, I mean, we don't have the time apart from anything, but also from a, you know, a nature and biodiversity perspective, it's better to leave the grass to grow. So we did that last year and it was lovely, but it was predominantly grass. And the thing about starting a wildflower meadow is unless you prep your land, it's really difficult to get these species to outcompete the grass. So you can sow yellow rattle and all of that kind of stuff, but it's really hard to get it going. So after we had the septic tank replaced and they came and flattened the land and I spread topsoil everywhere, sort of low grade topsoil, it's actually given us the perfect opportunity to reseed, which we never would have done otherwise. So silver linings and all that even though it's incredibly stressful at the time we're hoping if this seed takes you know if the birds haven't eaten it all or like (laughs) luckily we've got rain today but it hasn't rained for three weeks and I sowed the seeds a couple of weeks ago but yeah I'm really hoping that in you know a couple of months time we won't even know if it'd been there and then that will give us a really solid base that will slowly you know we sowed lots of yellow rattle seed and that will hopefully just kind of disperse around the garden and just keep the grass down because I was listening to your interview with the lady from Damson Farm, is it? And she was talking yes. about scything and yeah. Yes. And I mean, so when we moved here, we bought this petrol lawnmower from the owners because they were selling it cheap. And it's the thought of never having to use that again and to sell that and to not have that and not have that noise and the petrol and the, you know, and to instead scythe is like, it's brilliant. Yeah. So 
that's the plan. Yeah, that was really <laughs> wonderful. And I love the idea of the, the community side thing yeah. class. <laughs> How wonderful. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Great. And what is your daily or weekly garden practice either here or, and I guess in season here or, and or at the allotment? Well, I spend a lot of time in the garden, but I think the thing is now, because we're only in our second year here, we're still doing a lot of structural stuff. So I'm hoping that it does calm down because it's a lot when you're trying to run a business as well, you know, and I just growing the flowers doesn't make me money. (laughs) So I do have to also do all the other stuff. Yeah, I would say at the moment, because we're in April, so it's really hectic from a kind of seed sowing perspective and pricking out all of the seedlings and getting them going. I'm spending sort of three to four hours either in the garden or in the greenhouse a day. I tend to go to the allotment kind of once a week when I can fit the time in, but I'm really conscious of making that space work for itself so that I don't have to be there all the time because it is obviously away from where we live. But yeah, I still, at this point in time, I don't find it a chore when I'm having to do a really big, last year we had to do a lot of structural stuff and the people that lived here before were very neat and tidy and they put in lots of hard edges with raised beds and gravel paths and they grew everything on membrane which if you're a garden you know does not you know we live in a like a lovely piece of land you don't need to lay membrane down because you're just stopping all of that you know the mycelium and all of the kind of bits and pieces under the soil to kind of interact so I mean I removed so many meters of membrane last year and it's a killer because the soil is clay so Yes, there's been lots of jobs like that, but I'm kind of hoping that they're coming to an end now and it will just be a case of, yeah, focusing on the growing, which will be good. Wonderful. And you grow biodynamically, is that correct? I'm trying to. I came across it, I don't even know how I came across it, but I think the reason that I was interested in it, actually it was through Charles Dowding, the no-dig guy, yeah. So I'm really like really really passionate about kind of no dig gardening and this is coming from someone who used to love digging over the allotment like I I basically (laughs) yeah I basically went forced myself to go into labor with my first son by spending all day at 42 weeks digging over the allotment because I was like I just come out yeah Yeah. and that was in January and I just loved it I just loved that physical exertion and like you know the satisfaction of seeing the all the weeds go but obviously yeah. they immediately come back I know that now <laughs> and I came across an dig and trialed it on our allotment because the problem with allotment soil this is back when we lived in Farnham is that it tends to be really quite degraded and lots of plots are left unkept so the seeds from them just kind of blow in and it's it's really hard to stay on top of things but after Henry was born I kind of discovered no dig and I the thing that really kind of got my interest about it was the fact that mainly it was about the weed suppression because mm-hmm. it was like okay obviously I understand about putting the goodness back in and not breaking up the you know all of the kind of intricacies that's going on in the soil under there but the thought of not having to weed as regularly when you've got a baby was like okay this just for that alone yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna And then I think I've got one of his books and in that he showed the difference between sowing, I think it was sowing carrots on one of, you know, a leaf day or a root day or whatever it was. And and then we moved here because I've only started doing it in the last year. And I now kind of, we live really close to the sea and I sea swim and I'm really, have really become aware of the impact of the moon on the sea. Mm -hmm. So high tides at full and, you know, new moon, but like dramatically different. So I can go down to the water now at high tide and I'll be able to tell you what cycle of the moon it is because I can tell from you know the height of the tide and then you're kind of thinking and the way the moon affects me as well you know sometimes a full moon can make me crazy and I just read something in one of his books about it and I was like I want to learn more about this because it just makes sense like the power of the moon and water and the soil and all that kind of stuff there has to be something in that basically so I'm only in my first year it's the thing I would say is that I'm a very disorganized person and what in many ways, it's actually quite good because it's forced me to be quite organized. You know, on the days when it's a flower day, I'm like, okay, I'm going into the greenhouse and I'm going to sow those seeds. But then it gets to the point where you're like, uh, you've, you know, that maybe there's only four flower growing days in March and I need to sow all these seeds. I'm like, oh, but I have tried to be super like regimented about it. And so far, to be honest, I don't know if it's because I've got more time this year. I'm not sure, but I've got some amazing growth going on in the greenhouse, like really good germination rates and then really good, solid, amazing root systems, which is something that I've always struggled with. 
before. So yeah, I watch this space. It's only my first year, but I do really enjoy it. And I like understanding more about the connection between the moon, the water, like all of that kind of stuff is really interesting. That's wonderful. I asked Jean Scotter if there's sort of a default day, like if you can't do the flower day, what you should do. And she mm. said, use a root day because that's everything needs roots. So, <laughs> oh God, that's so good to know. Yeah. Oh my gosh, okay. that's amazing. <laughs> I know because I'm always thinking, well, if it's a perennial and it's not going to bloom until the second year, maybe I want leaves because that's photosynthesis. Or, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So root day, root day is your default. <laughs> yeah. Well, but also because the other thing I was working out as well when I first so I was just being generically everything that I grow is a flower. So therefore everything must be sown on a flower day. But then I was like, well, actually no. So anything that's an umbilifer is probably a root, right? Because right. it's basically like a carrot. Yeah, so yeah. it's from that family. So, and then you've got all of your stuff like amaranth and that, that for me is leaf. Yeah. That's not flower. So it's really actually kind of helped me think about my plants a bit more as well, which is good. I just, yeah, I'm one of these people where I, and I think this probably goes back to why school doesn't really suit me. I learn from doing, mm-hmm. I don't learn from reading and just from experiencing. And that's, you know, I didn't, I guess with biodynamic gardening, I didn't think, right, I'm going to go and learn everything about this before I try it. I was just like, that feels like it's logical for me. Yeah. So I'm going to try it out and see what happens. And yeah, I think it's good. Yeah. And do you use the Maria Thune guide? Do you use, or do you use an app? Yeah. No, I'm not good on like technology. <laughs> And my husband's always laughing at me. Actually, I missed a meeting yesterday because I wrote it down in my paper diary wrong. And then people that I was going to be meeting were like, why have you got a paper diary? <laughs> so, yeah. And do you use any of the preparations? No, but that's something else that I've just found out about as well. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely something I want to learn more about. I really, I'm trying very hard this year to develop my own fertilizer by using forage seaweed from the beaches. And I have a wormery that gives me loads of fertilizer. So I've got quite a lot of kind of natural stuff already. And then I got a book the other day and the guy there gives a mixture for making a fertilizer out of eggshells, which I think is linked to that a bit as well. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't know. I think maybe that's something when I have a bit more time on my hands because I've had a quick look and I was like, this sounds complex. Like stirring for an hour. Yeah, yeah. I bought pre-made <laughs> preparations. Yeah. And, and then I also <laughs> sprang for the $1 extra pre-potentated so you only have to stir a smaller amount of time. Yeah. I was like, I don't know if this is like instant coffee biodynamic, but I think it's going to work. It's fine. <laughs> anything, anything's, all, anything's good. And I, I meant to ask, so with your, when your first experiment on using no dig, did you find there was a noticeable difference on the allotment? Yeah, definitely. 100%. That's great. So definitely on my allotment in Farnham, we noticed it. And that's, you know, it is an investment because you have to either buy a lot of compost to lay, whether you've got your beds already and you're laying it as your top kind of mulch layer or you're building your beds. Right. There is an investment there, which I think is potentially hard for some people to kind of afford. But I just think it pays dividends tenfold with the quality of plants and the time that it saves you. And I think about the beds here. So in Farnham, I only ever used it as, you know, the top mulching of an existing bed on my allotment. So I never built new no-dig beds. But here in Devon, all of the beds that I've built, apart from the front gardens, have been no-dig beds on grass. And the growing space that, you know, I shared on Instagram and on Patreon last year they were all brand new beds built on grass using no dig and it was amazing. So, and I haven't had to, there's like no weeding to be done even now. So yeah, yeah, I really noticed the difference and I think I wouldn't do it any other way now, even though I do, I do still miss that like turning over of the soil. It's funny. It's, I know I I have the exact same feeling and it's such a funny, I think I also, I oddly, when I discovered biodynamic gardening, it was from Alan Chadwick. He was a big double digger. So it's a funny, you know, I think a lot of biodynamic gardeners now are, are no dig, but just the idea of, and sort of like turning over the earth and smelling it, all of that was really, yeah. you know, and, it's, and it was also nice to think, oh, I don't have to do that if I don't have the time, but, but it was, um, yeah. yeah, there's something very, I don't know, it's just like a task and it's a something to, yeah, I don't know. There's something, something I don't know. It is, yeah. yeah. Weird. Do, <laughs> it is weird and I do miss it. And I have really found myself on this new allotment that we've got. For the most part, it's really good soil because the yeah. guy that had it or really looked after it but there is areas with weeds and I did find myself the other day like beginning to dig it over like yeah. to get rid of some weeds and then yeah. I was like no stop stop yeah. <laughs> down. Yeah. it's hard to unlearn <laughs> yeah it is hard to unlearn but yeah. <laughs> 
Well, I wanted to speak a little bit more about your dried flowers. So can you share a little bit what you like about them as a medium? You know, why you focused on dried rather than fresh and then also anything that makes them sort of difficult to work with? Yeah, well, it's not that I don't like fresh at all. I Of course. I love them. So what I love about dried is, I mean, obviously the fact they last. So from a kind of longevity and sustainability perspective, they feel like a better option. Having said that, I don't really see them as a replacement for fresh. So Mm. I just, you know, in the summer, there is no way I would take a bunch of dried flowers around to someone's house if I was going for dinner. I would pick some (laughs) flowers from my garden. So I think it's important to kind of say that. But what I love about them is the fact that they, you know, they have the ability to kind of bring the outside in, whether that's in your home or you know, in a restaurant or a retail space or something like that. And it, I just love to have them around, really. And I I find them much more interesting and intriguing than fresh flowers. I think fresh flowers are like in your face, beautiful. You know, you don't even sometimes need to look that closely to kind of see how amazing they are. But with a dried flower, it's it's much more subtle. And the process that they go through to get from fresh to dried, I think just really, really fascinates me and still fascinates me. I'm still, you know, I'm by no means dried everything that I want to yet. <laughs> There's still so much out there. But the other side of it as well, which I think is really, I'm really beginning to understand more about myself is that I, first of all, I really struggle to cut flowers anyway, even for drying. I really struggle with it. And if I had to cut them in bud, which is what you would have to do if you were cutting for fresh, right? So because with dried flowers, you basically normally you cut them when they're in their perfect state. Mm-hmm. So they've been out for a day or two. The bees and butterflies have enjoyed them. You've enjoyed them in the garden. And then you cut them and dry them. And, you know, they go on and last for weeks and years and months. But with a fresh flower, if you're either cutting it as a flower farmer to sell it to a florist or you're putting it in a bouquet or you're putting it in a vase, you're going to cut it in the bud stage. And OK, you might get to enjoy that if you bring it into the home, but you don't like the garden doesn't get to enjoy it. Yeah. And I definitely think there's an element of that at play with what I do. Like I really, you know, there will be times when I, even with straw flowers, I haven't cut them in time because I can't bring myself to cut them. And then they've gone over and they've gone to seed. So, and obviously that makes no sense because this is my business and I need to be much more ruthless and I am getting better the more I grow. But that, that for me is kind of, I think the thing that makes me love dried flowers as much as I do it's it's that it's the fact that I can join them in all of their glory in the garden even if I'm growing something for seed head I get to you know I get to take it all the way through to seed and then cut it and then you can bring them in and have something that lasts but that kind of softens the edges of a room you know it can really kind of do that so yeah yeah you posted not so recently but um about a piece that was I think it was like a large cloud almost form and I think it was Mm. part of a wedding in some way and then it was going on the couple's mantle and I thought that was so beautiful that they were going to have for a number of years like a a true you know representation of that wedding moment which is really sweet yeah yeah so but that's the great thing as well is that that you know if you so there's a couple of things ways that I work which is that I can create something for a specific moment in time that can then be taken on so if I was to make a bridal hoop as well for a wedding day or something that can then be hung on the wall as a wreath but same with a everlasting bouquet you know that can then be put in a vase or displayed or made something else out of but what I often do as well is that I will so I did a display recently for a friend's 40th birthday party and it was huge they were like 40 inches high these numbers and obviously has no room in her house for it. And also, you know, probably wouldn't want a 40 in there all the time. (laughs) So as part of the kind of the way I costed it and proposed to do that for her was that I took the numbers away with me and I've actually spent the last two days dismantling them and I've now reused those flowers for something else. And that for me is really important to as much as possible kind of give people the opportunity to either give the stuff back to me if they're just going to compost it because it's normally fine maybe just with shorter stems or go on and create something else with it that is maybe better suited with that for their house yeah that's wonderful and I think in your wreath class you also mentioned using the same base and you know even you know kind of the majority of the flowers but trading in and out blooms so you yeah sort of had your yeah your one kind of effect but you could change the colors and stuff which is just wonderful yeah exactly and I often get people sending me you know, messages on Instagram saying, I made this at your wreath class. Like I had one the other day, made a wreath with me three years ago and it's still hanging on her wall, but she's just, you know, popped in a few extra fresh flowers, like freshly dried flowers to kind of bring it back to life a bit. And it's like, that's amazing, you know, that something like that, that's natural can last that long. 
Yeah, well, it really shows care and the treatment of the flower all the way through, you know, really honors yeah. kind of that life in a way that sometimes with the, it's always wonderful to know that when you compost, it goes back into the soil. It's kind of that cycle, mm. but it's also lovely to have that, yeah, longevity, as you said, that's wonderful. Yeah. And I was curious, are there any flowers that surprised you with their ability to dry or be used as dry flowers? Yeah. So what I would say, the thing is with flowers is that anything will dry. And there are lots of things that when you dry, they look absolutely stunning, but they're really hard to work with. And that's kind of what I'm focusing a bit on now is like, how do I get something like a tulip to dry, which they do dry, but then they're really susceptible to collecting moisture again, just because of the kind of, you know, the way the flowers are very fleshy anyway. So they become really delicate. So okay, I've dried that, but now what can I do with it? That means that, you know, it's going to last for X amount of, you know, months or whatever it might be. But it's things like that, that I really started trialing in lockdown, actually. So ranunculus, Mm -hmm. tulips, buttercups are absolutely stunning dried and forget-me-nots are just insanely beautiful, but obviously like this big. (laughs) (laughs) So what can I do with that? You know, oxide daisies, like there's, yeah, I write, I write, I've got a new book out and I write about this a lot in that book, which is you've got your everlastings, right? Which is your straw flowers, your helichrysiums, your um, statuses, all of those things which basically don't really change much in their appearance from when they're fresh to when they're dried. And they are absolutely wonderful. But what I'm really interested in is all those bits that you can then add to those wonderful, colourful flowers that make it look a little bit more wild and organic. And that can really be anything. That could be anything as long as you can kind of accept it for being different to what it was when it was fresh because that's the thing that's kind of you know that the key difference but yeah I'd say the one that always continues to surprise me not like not only in its beauty but also in how dramatically it changes is a dahlia yes yeah I absolutely adore them and I've growing actually lots of dahlias from seed this year because I couldn't afford any tubers and they're doing amazingly so I'm hoping that yeah that I'll be getting lots of those but they're amazing Fantastic. With your tulips, what have you found to be to work or how do you approach a trial? You know, you tried a couple different ways of doing it. Yeah. So with a tulip, I would dry them hanging upside down for the most part. I might try them this year in a riddle so that they start so sitting upright with their stems hanging down. But the things I found with stuff like with plants like tulips and peonies and dahlias, ranunculus, anything like that, is they take much, much longer to dry. Mm. And the problem not so much with dahlias because it's in the summer but the problem with drying a tulip right now is that in the UK the tulips are just coming out but it is still pretty cold and wet and damp yeah so they take much longer to dry which means that they're much more susceptible to mold and that's when you kind of get floppy heads and all that kind of stuff so my husband doesn't know this but I actually think I'm gonna try to dry them in the house this year (laughs) surprise (laughs) (laughs) because my cabin is basically like a potting shed so it's yeah, it's cold. It's kind of damp, even though I've got a dehumidifier. But I think that's the main thing. It's the same when you dry anything, really. You just need to make sure that you have a consistently average room temperature temperature. So not too cold, not too hot. You don't want to dry them in direct sunlight, but it's okay to dry them out of the dark. And then you just need to make sure that, that wherever you're drying them is completely free of moisture. Mm-hmm. And the problem, as I said, with those spring blooms is that basically you're trying to dry them when it's still wet and damp outside. Yeah. Yeah. So for me now, I'm just going to see if I can dry them in a better environment and see where I get to. Wonderful. And for um, ranunculus, what do you, what do you recommend there? I think they're so beautiful in the vase. Like I let them just hang out and totally decay, (laughs) but I'm like, "Ah, but I can't move. Yeah. Again, a really tricky one. I think I might try this year. I might try them similar to what I was just saying about Mm -hmm. tulips. So, so you basically nestle the head in something. So it's upright because that otherwise the petals, you know, they just kind of droop down, yeah. which is not awful, but I would love to see how that would dry. I think it's the same for an anemone as well, for example. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. So, but all these things are so, so delicate that yeah. I'm, you know, that I have to kind of think, what am I going to then do with that? And for me, it would probably just be that I study them and adore them, but I'd never be able to send them out in a wreath or anything like that because they'd just be too, yeah. Yeah. And there's no safe post-make treatment like <laughs> cornstarch spray or anything like that. So I think some people do use hairspray. Right, right. Like, and particularly if you've got something like pampas grass or, mm-hmm. you know, like a seed head that goes everywhere. But I just don't use anything, yeah. anything unnatural. And that's why I don't really, in my first book, I had a whole section on kind of drying with silica, but I just don't, I don't do that anymore. I don't use anything that isn't natural. Yeah. So yeah, I think... 
unfortunately stuff like that whilst they do dry it's just they're much more tricky to work with but obviously if I find the secret I will I'm sure be sharing <laughs> of course, it of course of <laughs> course I saw the the pictures of that 40th birthday wreath those were gorgeous yeah what I'm always struck by is your colors they're I mean they're really vibrant without you know mm. using dyes or anything like that and so I was wondering if you had any favorite kind of color keepers that you go to if you want that bright look yeah, well, I think that is the misconception with dried flowers, isn't it? Is that, well, it's even actually, it's kind of like the ends of the spectrum. I mean, if you think about status, when my grandma used to have it in her house, it was lurid, like <laughs> horrible, horrible, horrible colours. And the same with straw flowers, it would just be like orange or red or maybe yellow. But now you've got all these amazing kind of soft shades, both in status and straw flowers and all that kind of stuff. So Basically, if you're looking for colour, you just really want to focus and guaranteed colour as well. You want to focus on those true everlastings, as I call them, which is the anything that kind of has a papery petal to it. So it would be the straw flowers. There's a couple of versions of straw flowers. One's called Acrolinium and the other one's called Rodanth. Mm -hmm. And they are much more delicate than your Helichrysiums. But then you have lots of beautiful yellow flowers that dry really well. There's one called uh, Lona and something like a solidago mm -hmm. which is a weed in the uk yeah that is beautiful when it's dried um achillea yeah if you get that at the right time there's a one version called variety called golden cloth which just is beautiful beautiful but then i will always use those flowers in conjunction with foliage or fillers that do not compete with that color mm -hmm. and i think that then helps those colors to stand out if that makes sense yes. so in the big 40 that i made i used hops as the base yes, I thought so. <laughs> yeah and that they're kind of like greeny going on golden but that just meant that all the colors that i use lots of yellows and pinks and oranges really popped because they have that beautiful kind of natural base and i think that is the thing is like you just need to work with your colors and complement them with the things that are going to basically make them shine yeah. really that's wonderful and where do you take inspiration from today? Are there any gardens or books or people that you draw from? Right now, probably because we've only been living here for about 18 months, it really is, it's just like my garden and the surroundings. And I went for a swim the other day and the colours were so insane and the water was sparkling so much, the sea. And I just think, you know, it doesn't need to be a literal kind of, you know, I saw that and I want to make that or I saw that thing and it was growing and I want to now... But just being around so much beauty all the time. And I cycle down for my swim. And, you know, when I was kind of living in Farnham, I spent most of my time in the car. But now that I cycle, I'm like, I hide with the road verges. Yes. And I'm seeing this like on a daily basis, the things that are growing there and the way they combine together. And I think that really inspires me because I'm like nose to, you know, like literally here as I'm kind of driving, yeah. cycling down on my bike. And then I get to the sea with it, which are these like beautiful. So it's a stony beach and there's, you know, all the different colors of the stone and then the blues of the sea and the sparkling of the water and the sky. And then I cycle back up the hill and it's green. And yeah, I think it's right now it is just literally where I live and I love it. And yeah, I think it's really if you look at my work before we moved here and where it is now and kind of the direction it's going in, it's it's just really quite different now. Yeah, I think that's why, really. That's fantastic. <laughs> And do you have any favorite gardens either in your area or in the UK? Well, there is a designer garden who I'm sure you know, Pete Ordov. Oh, yes. Yeah. So he designed a garden for Hauser and Worth, which is an art gallery mm -hmm. in Froome, which is just kind of, or Bruton, which is just up the road here. And his gardens, I'm hugely inspired by his planting. And I visited these gardens in Bruton in the winter and I would argue that they were as beautiful as they are in the summer it was a crisp clear, clear day and there was frost still on all of the grasses mm. and the seed heads and that's really what I'm trying to do with a lot of my space here as well is kind of having a garden that looks good all year round not just bare soil when the plants have died away yeah. so yeah he's probably my biggest inspiration I think that's wonderful and how do you involve your children in the garden but sometimes the question is do you involve your children in the garden yeah I so actually I had my youngest son Arlo was off school today he just didn't want to go to school and it's the end of term and I was like do you know what just have a break yeah. stay with me and he more so than my older son Henry he has maybe it's because when I was on maternity leave like literally that's all I did but he gets plants in a way that I don't know there's something there and I really hope he can maintain and hold on to that so I was in my studio and I'd cut some fresh flowers I was doing a 
video for Patreon and he said, oh, can I make a display as well? He's only six. So we went around the garden and his ability to kind of put together color combinations Mm -hmm. and like flower combinations is amazing. And he made a vase display, which just amazing. He loves to come seeding with me, which is what he calls it, where he just comes and plants (laughs) seeds. And he's so good at pricking out without even knowing, without me saying, right, this is why we're pricking out. This is what you must and mustn't do. You know, don't touch the stems. Don't, I don't need to say any of that. He knows. And it's there kind of in him. And my oldest son, Henry, he really wants to be involved. (laughs) And I do try to involve him, but he's the total opposite. He gets bored so quickly. He's just like, oh, I've done one seed tray. I'm gone. (laughs) I'm going to go and ride my bike. But I think the main thing for me is that besides Arlo, who's into like the flower stuff that I do, I just love to grow the vegetable as well Mm -hmm. so that they can go there. They can pick a raspberry. They can pick some monge too and eat peas out of the pod and dig up some potatoes because that's really important. And they both love doing that. I think that sense memory of eating things out of the garden is so, mm. yeah, so important or, or special to have. And it's, you, you never sort of yeah. forget it. Yeah. So you've written a little bit about your experience as a small business owner and a parent during the mm. pandemic, but balancing that family work, family work balance can be difficult no matter what, but lockdown is especially, yeah. you know, right, homeschooling, all of that. And so I was wondering if you could share a little bit about your pandemic experience and then Anything also that you find challenging today and how you're working around those challenges or maybe just acknowledge them? I don't know. The first lockdown we had, which was two years ago now, right? Basically two, yeah, yeah, about two years ago. Bizarrely, we really, really enjoyed it. Arlo wasn't at school yet. Henry was in year two or something. No, year one, I think. I don't know. Anyway, they were (laughs) young and there was homework set, but we didn't do any of it. I just was like, no, this is an opportunity for us to be together as a family, I'm not going to sit you down in front of a computer and get you to do the work. My mum used to do art classes on Zoom with them, which was brilliant. And we just used to, we just went and walked and walked and walked. So that's pretty much the only thing you were allowed to do in the UK was go for a walk. And that lockdown, that first lockdown was actually what made us reappraise our lives and move here. So that was actually fine. Of course, there was stresses there and it was very unsettling and unnerving and scary, but generally it was all fine. And then we obviously moved here didn't know anyone, couldn't meet anyone because we were locked down again in the September. Living on this hill in a place that I absolutely wanted to love, but actually just felt so incredibly overwhelmed and trapped by the fact that we couldn't leave mm-hmm. <laughs> and we didn't know anyone. And I had both boys at home who were then a year, who had started school. So, you know, and they were at a new school. So it was just a little bit different and it was winter. And, oh, it was, I was saying yesterday when I was talking to someone, you know, I'm seeing things in the garden a year on from that lockdown that I didn't even notice last year because I think my head was so like locked in, you know, just not enough headspace to do anything but focus on keeping the boys happy, Mm -hmm. keeping my marriage alive and also trying to kind of do some work in the garden. So it was really not a good time for, I don't think for anyone really, Mm -hmm. it was really, really hard. And from a work perspective, I had a really big project. I was actually writing my second book in that lockdown, which was like, I never want to go through that again. It was really, really stressful. Whilst also obviously getting my garden together for the photo shoot. That's insane. I mean, now I'm like, oh gosh, I look back and I think, what was I? But I had, you know, obviously I had a deadline. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I got the book deal before we moved. So it's kind of, well, you know, my publishers were amazing and they moved the date, but also they were like, Come on, Bex. (laughs) Yeah, so that was really hard. But I think working in any job, whether you're in a creative job or you're in the office like I used to be and being a mother is just inherently a really hard thing to do. Mm. And I would say the difference now that I have is that I get to spend so much of my time outside, even when I am working, I'm gardening and I make sure that I get my daily exercise by cycling and going for a swim. And that really helps my mental capacity to deal with all of the extra stresses that come, you know, with after school clubs and all that kind of stuff. And so I would say my life is no less busy than it was before, but it's more nurturing and nourishing in the things that I choose to do with that time. Maybe because of where we live, I don't know. But yeah, I feel this year is, you know, there's so much awful things going on. So it's it's really a strange thing to say, but I feel the release of not being in the pandemic anymore is so good. Yeah. So good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Term self care is kind of overused, or you yeah. know, what does it? But you've built in these kind of nourishing habits that you're able to rely on, even though so much is going on. Yeah, exactly. And I think being where we are, kind of those things that I'm able to do now, like 
you know, the cycling, going for a swim and having a bigger garden Mm -hmm. to tend and all that kind of stuff. It just helps me mentally to be strong. Whereas when I was in Farnham and I was working in the corporate world, you know, I would try to fit those things into my life. But invariably, it meant that I was working all day in the office, sitting in a car commuting to get there. And then my exercise or downtime would be going to a yoga class full of people in a room. Because like everything was kind of very formulaic. Whereas here, it just feels like I can naturally weave the things that I need to do into my life quite easily. And it just works in a way that, you know, it wasn't before. So yeah, I'm so incredibly grateful that we did make that decision to move here. Yeah. I'm glad you were able to do that. That's wonderful. Yeah. And what does this upcoming season look like for you? Any particular tasks or activities, any spring traditions that you have? Yeah, I have got a bit of a, well, so the last kind of year, I've been very much focusing on my new book that's coming out and that's being released in June. So I'm kind of building up to announcing that and all of that kind of stuff. But I have very consciously tried to not take on too much work and not push myself to constantly be busy which is quite hard financially but basically I kind of I need a break from being overwhelmed all the time that's fair yeah so I'm really really focusing on and that's why I think Patreon is an example is I've really tried to kind of diverse my income stream with my business this year so whether that be doing online tutorials or online workshops like the ones at Christmas like all this stuff where I'm not so reliant on constantly being there making things and all that kind of stuff so I'm going to focus a bit more on that but really the thing for me is I want to just grow as much as I can so this next couple of months it's just going to be about that getting the ground ready sowing seeds planting them out hoping the weather behaves and yeah and hopefully enjoying some time not doing that as well yeah (laughs) excellent and I I love your Everlasting's book it was just so inspiring I've recommended it to a number of people but I I say I I warn them that you'll read it and then you just wander around your garden going I wonder how I try you (laughs) I truly was like muttering to myself like this sweet like (laughs) very odd behavior after but um I'm like oh could you try pull over I think I could try that yeah it's like it adds it's like it's enough that you're like always looking in other people's gardens right it's another layer it's like one more thing it's like yeah and there's another step but I was wondering are you able to share a little bit about your new book yeah absolutely well I feel like it's a big sister to everlasting it's obviously about me now and my work and that's quite different to what I was doing when I wrote everlastings which I wrote I think four years ago it must have been and it was when I was kind of really starting out on my journey and so forever flowers is basically it shares a lot about the values like the way I run my business you know how I grow so we've talked a bit about no dig and all of that kind of stuff but just really kind of going into a bit more detail on that and then there's a big section on what you can dry but way more than everlastings had in there with lots of kind of images of fresh flowers that you can then dry and then there's about I think it's about 13 projects something like that but they're inspirational projects in the sense that whereas everlastings was really sort of how to with individual photos and stuff this is about looking at your environment looking at your spaces looking at what material you may have to work with and then creating something within that space that fits your environment so yeah and I kind of basically even though I didn't really know anyone here I managed to find all these amazing locations like my friend down the road has got a peach house a house with a peach tree in it and I made a creation for in there and then another friend had got this dusty kind of cobweb like gardening shed that they never went into but it was full of all these old lovely bits of kind of utensils and stuff and I did a creation in there I was mm-hmm. like this is amazing and they everyone thinks I'm mad yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's just stuff like that. For me, it's kind of celebrating my love for where I live now and what Mm -hmm. I do and just the natural materials that I use. So, yeah. And there's a lot actually about kind of how you work with colour, how you work with scent, like all of those kinds of things. Lots of people ask me, you know, these kind of questions. So it goes into a lot more detail on that as well. Oh, I'm so excited. (laughs) We will link to all of that in the show notes. Great. Thank you. And then the the question that we ask everyone, based on your experiences with gardening, how do you think we can bring more people into the garden? What worked for you? Well, I think it's a, it's something about like trying to remove this fear that people seem to have about, like so many people I've met here say to me, I'm not green fingered. So I wouldn't like, I wouldn't go in the garden. I wouldn't do anything. And I'm like, but that's not true. We are nature. We are all 
in our bones have that in there. And I think it's become, in many ways, it's almost become a bit too exclusive, you know, in the way that it's kind of presented in magazines with like pitch perfect gardens. And and actually that is kind of what I wanted to show a bit in Forever Flowers is that you can go and pick some leaves from a tree and do something with it. You know, you don't need to be, yes, I do grow loads of flowers, but there's other ways that you can kind of work with them. And I think it's the same with gardening. Like, no one needs to be fearful of it. And if you can just get people to kind of experience that growing of a seed or eating of a vegetable or whatever it might be, it should spark something inside of you to kind of want to do it more. And that's why I also always kind of tell people if they do start out, it's like, just choose the easiest thing in the world. Like a friend has just taken on an allotment. I was like, just put potatoes in the ground because... That will work and you won't then be despondent if something doesn't work. And then in your second year, once you've got your soil started and all that kind of stuff, then you can go into more tricky things. But, you know, I remember in my first year of my allotment, I tried to grow everything and it was awful, but then took it right back to basics and was like, okay, what do I eat and what's easy? Yeah. Courgettes and potatoes and you're onto a winner. Yeah. <laughs> and then you feel like cosmos seeds. If it's yeah. the first thing you're going to sow, get a pack of cosmos yeah. seeds, put them on your windowsill. In two days, you'll have seedlings. Yeah. No one can go wrong. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, I think it's that. And I do, I also think it's a bit about, there's definitely in the UK, particularly an issue with accessibility of land and just, you know, particularly in city spaces. Mm And yeah, so I think there's a lot that needs to be addressed that with that and making people feel like it's an inclusive space and that anyone's welcome there. But yeah, to not be scared, don't be scared. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so, so much for joining me. Again, your work is beautiful. I've definitely had days where I think I'm going to cheer myself up by looking at just your, those, I call them like flower ribbons, but you know, they're just just so magical. Yeah. So it's really (laughs) wonderful for just, thank you for creating it. Thank you for sharing it. It's been such an inspiration. Thank you for having me. It's been great to talk to you. Thank you so much for listening. Garden People is produced with generous support from our sponsor, Plant Gem. Plant Gem sells unique plants you won't find anywhere else for a garden that reflects your personal style. Find them at www.plantgem.com. As always, thank you for supporting the companies that support this podcast. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love it if you left a review as it helps other garden people find us. You'll find links for everything we've discussed in the show notes or on our website. To get early access to our guest list and information about bonus episodes, gardening tips from our guests, and more, Sign up for the newsletter at violetearstudio.com.